0: everybody, and welcome to the joint Cato Mercatus online conference, a Fed for Next Time, ideas for Crisis Ready Central Bank. I'm George Selgin, director of Cato Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, and this week and next we'll be exploring ideas for reforming the Federal Reserve to better prepare it for future crises. But while also protecting it from fiscal dominance, and finally protecting ourselves and our democracy from dominance by the Fed, this uh, week's uh, today's rather session is on reforming credit policy, and I'm very pleased now to introduce to you the moderator for that session, New York Times, Federal Reserve, and Economics Reporter Gianna smiliak Welcome, Gianna.
1: Hi there, thank you so much for joining us today. As, as George mentioned, I'm Gina Smilic. I'm the Federal Reserve reporter at the New York Times. That um, policies are always exciting, but today's especially well-timed, given that Chair Powell just wrapped his Senate testimony on monetary policy about half an hour ago. Um, a few logistics on today's panel. Attendees can submit questions via the CATO webpage, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at the hashtag, hashtag CATOECON, so C-A-T-O-E-C-O-N. Um, I'm going to go ahead and briefly introduce all three of our speakers and then we are going to turn to their statements. Once they conclude with those statements, we will go ahead and do Q&A. So just get in your questions before before we start that so that I can have a look at them. Um, Sir Paul Tucker is going to be our first speaker today. He is a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School, chair of the Systemic Risk Council, and was previously a career central banker, including deputy governor of the Bank of England. Um, where he was a member of the Group of 20 Financial Stability Board. He's the author of the book Unelected Power, Quest for Legitimacy in Central Banking in the Regulatory State. Our second speaker is Kate Judge, who is the Harvey Goldschmidt P- Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. She is an expert on financial regulation and is the editor of the journal and editor of the Journal of Financial Regulation and a member of the Financial Stability Task Force sponsored by the Brookings Institution and the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. She has served on the advisory committee at the Treasury's Office of Financial Research. Lev Manand is our final speaker, and he is an academic fellow and lecturer at Columbia Law School, where he specializes in central banking. He's a senior advisor at the Treasury between 2014 and 2016 and spent the earlier part of his career at the New York Fed, where he worked on Treasury market infrastructure and on stress tests and at the Financial Stability Oversight Council. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Paul, who will get us started with his statement.
2: Thanks, Gianna, and thanks to George and David for inviting me. And thanks to all of you for for watching um, today. So the Federal Reserve faces a pretty big problem. We're seeing this again. It's become the indispensable actor in ensuring that the American economy doesn't disappear down a vortex into a repeat of the Great Depression. And in this respect, the United States is close to being a country where the very biggest decisions fall to the Supreme Court and the Federal Reserve. And one of the things I would like to underline is is that although across these sessions people will talk about the Federal Reserve, and many people will say, including me, the Federal Reserve shouldn't do this or it should face such and such a constraint. Actually, we should bear in mind that this debate is happening because Congress and the executive branch failed to step up to the plate again and again to help the American people. What that means, I think, is that for those that want to bar the Federal Reserve from doing certain things, particularly in the area of credit policy, um, they need to live with either accepting the consequences of no one acting or hold the belief and have a way of getting Congress and the executive branch to do more than they have typically been prepared to do to support the economy during bad periods over, well, the more than quarter of a century in which I've been watching these things and involved with them for many years. I I, I would say um, two to three things about a regime for the Fed itself. First of all, as an independent authority insulated by design from day-to-day politics, it should be subject to a regime and the people should know what that regime is. So it should be capable of being understood by interested members of the public. We need to get away from a world in which the Federal Reserve is some kind of area of esoteric knowledge for people in Wall Street and a few people um, in DC and academia. The second thing I would say, and this goes for all independent agencies, is that where the Federal Reserve steps in as an emergency actor, it needs to be clear what their objective is. I would say that over the past few months, Um, It hasn't always been clear, even in the last 24 hours, when the Fed is acting to support liquidity in the banking system, when it's acting to support liquidity in the shadow banking system, when it's acting to support um, liquidity in capital markets, when it's trying to prop up asset price levels, which it says it isn't doing, but I don't think that its um, operations fit neatly under other categories. And finally, um, when it's trying to get cash to members of the public or to businesses around the continent of America or to the government or to foreign governments. And those are all different objectives. And every time they do something special, we need to know what it is they're trying to achieve so that we can track and you, the people of America, can track whether or not they are achieving what they said they were trying to achieve. Another feature of a good um, contingency plan is that the exit should be reasonable, the conditions for the exit and the method of exit should be reasonably clear in advance. To make that concrete, the Federal Reserve is going to hold a lot of private sector paper, a lot of municipal paper, perhaps some state government paper. Is this paper that they will sell eventually or run off? Or will they swap it with the United States Treasury, making clear that it's the Treasury that take the risk on behalf of the the people? The third thing I would say is that it's important that the Federal Reserve does not get into the business of favouring some sectors over others, uh, households over businesses, some business sectors over others, some regions over others, and how it needs to be able to articulate criteria in advance so that everybody can be assured um, of that. Um, and finally, I would say it needs to be clear who takes the risk. And the answer to that question actually is always that it is the American taxpayer who takes the risk because if the Federal Reserve loses money on emergency operations, that means that they will pay a smaller dividend scenery to the treasury. And that ultimately gets reflected in lower public spending or higher taxes. But It's symmetric if they make profits um, as well. those are just a few things that I wanna put on that table. I mean, actually behind that lies a higher, um, uh, kind of more higher level set of issues about what is the place of unelected authority in constitutional democracy. We have drifted into a world where, as I said at the beginning, they are the crucial actors Um, I think that's lamentable, um, but it's plausibly where we will be in the years and decades to come. And therefore, there needs to be much more careful design. And probably that means by the Federal Reserve itself, who typically are, are overly cautious about articulating constraints on themselves. But actually, I think in the long run, they would serve themselves well and the American people well. And actually, what I care about the cause of independent central banking around the world well if they were to do that and to do that um, in a in a way that is comprehensible to ordinary people thanks jenna
1: okay great and kate do you want to go ahead and take it off
3: of course and i think my comment should follow very nicely on paul's so first, I too want to thank George and Cato and all of his colleagues there for sponsoring this, this series of discussions. It has never been more important for the, the public, at least the engaged public, to really be a part of these conversations, to understand what the Fed is doing, why they are doing it, and what they potentially should be doing that they're not yet doing. And so the this type of dialogue is a great foundation for that type of conversation, which is one of the ways we're going to get the type of accountability that Paul is talking about. So as a starting point, I think Paul's point, which is key, so I just want to reiterate it, is it's far from obvious that you need a central bank to play a meaningful role in credit policy, at least in the type of credit policy that we're seeing the Fed currently engage in. The Fed is currently having to play that role because of decisions made by other actors within the executive branch and by Congress Um, A central bank clearly has a very important role to play during periods of systemic distress with accommodative monetary policy, with providing short-term liquidity and helping to stabilize short-term markets. But when we shift over to credit policy, the Fed and other central banks don't have a long history of playing a, a strong and productive role in these spaces. So there's a lot more work to do to figure out what the Fed is doing and ought to be doing as it moves into these domains. So I wanna start with one thing that I think is actually going quite well, but won't always go well. So we need to make sure we give credit where credit is due and then think about some of the challenges ahead. So one of the things that's happening right now, which I think is really important, is we have great leadership and we also have a very skilled body of actors throughout the Federal Reserve System. So as a practical matter, every emergency is going to have its own unique contours. So no matter how well prepared the Federal Reserve is for the types of roles we want a central bank to play, there's always going to be the need for judgment to be exercised in the face of the particular challenges the bank is facing. And there is no substitute for leadership but also kind of deep institutional capacity to address in creative and productive ways the challenges that are at hand. So I think right now, the Fed, both at the leadership level and, and deeper into the institution, does have meaningful diversity challenges. And I think that's important for their thinking about both the types of problems that they, they recognize and the creativity or lack of creativity they are sometimes demonstrating over how to best achieve their objectives. So, I do think on the diversity front, and I mean that broadly speaking, there's room for improvement. On the other hand, Powell, Rich Clarida, we have a, a great group of people who are very well intentioned and very capable. We're currently leading the Fed, and I'm very grateful that we have the, the team in place that we do. Uh, but moving from personnel uh, to the Fed as an institution, I think if it's going to continue to play a meaningful role in credit policy, there are at least three different challenges that we're going to want to address. First, we're going to want to make sure that they actually have the institutional competence, that is the, the tools available, the skills inside the institution, uh, not just from external providers like BlackRock for the types of aims we want them to achieve. So one of the things we're, we're going to have to do is to make sure that if we want them to play these roles in times of emergency, that we are building up the appropriate set of skills and institutional capabilities during times of peace. Second, we're going to want to make sure that the the legal authority of the Fed maps well onto what it is we want them to achieve through their credit policy. And I expect Lev is going to speak further about this, so I won't go into detail. But there are reasons to be concerned. I have addressed this elsewhere. I've been quite concerned about whether or not the, the Fed's legal constraints are well mapped on to where we most need credit support in the economy, and in particular, uh, the small and mid-sized businesses and, and even businesses that might be going through or emerging from bankruptcy. So I think that there are reasons to think, both in terms of institutional competence and in terms of legal authority, that we're going to have to make some changes. But I wanna focus on a third component today, and this builds really nicely on Paul's comments, which is not surprising considering the great work he has done on the importance of accountability in the context of central banks. So I don't see the law as being the most important mechanism through which we get accountability here. Part of the reason we need really good personnel is, as I said, each challenge, each emergency each systemic threat is going to be a little bit different. And it's very hard to craft legal rules that map perfectly on to the various exigencies that might arise in the future. There is no way Congress was thinking, when it revised 13.3 last, Okay, well, in the face of a global pandemic, here's what we want the Fed to be able to do, and here's what we don't want the Fed to be able to do. And so instead, I think it's appropriate and healthy for the law to allow some meaningful flexibility. We want the Fed to be able to have the flexibility to do what they need to do. And we also don't want the Fed to be able to hide behind the law, as as personally I'm somewhat skeptical they might've done in the case of Lehman Brothers uh, in 2008. So I think the the legal constraints matter and should be updated, but they're not gonna be the primary constraint. Uh, What really one of the, the key components that is missing is what is it we're trying to achieve through credit policy and how is it we're trying to achieve it? So again, as Paul has has written about beautifully, when we talk about a a central bank going in as a lender of last resort, we have a a paradigm over what central banks are trying to achieve and how they're trying to achieve it. We want central banks to be lenders of last resort and we use Badgett's dictum, which has actually been modified quite a bit um, from Badgett's original work, to say, here's when and how a central bank ought to intervene. And there's a lot of reasons to be worried that this dictum is at times used opportunistically, again, by central bankers to justify certain actions or to avoid taking others. On the other hand, the, the fact that we have an agreed upon set of standards provides a framework through which lawmakers in Congress, academics, other commentators, the public at large can assess, is the Fed doing what they're supposed to be doing or are they not doing it? So we wanna have a set of principles that say, here's when they ought to act. There also should be limiting principles over here's where they ought not to act. And we also wanna make sure we understand how they are trying to achieve their particular goals. So while we definitely need to make progress in terms of those built-in institutional capacity, which was lacking this time around, we wanna make progress in the law I don't think we can make progress on either of those fronts until we come up with a broader agreed upon set of principles over here's what a a central bank ought to be doing um, when it's engaging in emergency lending uh, directly to non-bank institutions from nonprofits to municipalities to to non-financial firms. And and here's how we think that they are going about achieving that. And again, that that might emerge over time, Um, but I think trying to develop a a largely, even if not perfectly agreed upon paradigm is how we're going to get the the reference point that we're gonna need to help to create that meaningful accountability without trying to resort to tools like the law that might be imperfect relative to what we wanna achieve. Thank you.
1: Great, Kate, thank you very much. And then, Lev, do you want to go ahead with your comments?
4: Yes, sure. Thank you, Gina, and thank you, David and George, for inviting me uh, to be on this amazing panel. Uh, So much of what I know about this subject I've learned from Kate and from Sir Paul and their critical work on these issues. Um, And I think we all agree that the Fed's actions so far this year have staved off a monetary collapse and kept credit flowing to businesses and municipalities. What I want to focus on is that almost none of the 14 ad hoc lending facilities that the Fed has hastily thrown together to do this are actually authorized by the Federal Reserve Act taken along. Instead, these facilities rely on the CARES Act, which does not amend the Federal Reserve Act directly, but suspends various of its requirements sub in other words, by implication. Um, On its own, I think this suggests we ought to consider legal changes, uh, but the difficulties go deeper. Uh, Most, if not all, of the Fed's ad hoc facilities, I think, are necessary in the first place only because of serious design flaws in our monetary architecture and dysfunction that Sir Paul has alluded to within the political branches of our government. And I see uh, two distinct problems. The first is that firms that are not regulated like banks, so-called shadow banks, have gotten into the business of banking, that is, the business of creating money and money substitutes. This is the business that the Fed is supposed to manage and control, but the law assumes that only banks do it, and so the Fed can't manage it using its normal tools. The second is that the political branches lack the capacity to extend grants, conditional grants, or subsidized loans to individuals, businesses, and municipalities in an emergency. And they haven't agreed on a set of rules to guide the Fed in providing such assistance. So we're facing the first problem for the second time in 12 years. And the problem goes to the heart of what it means for the Fed to be a monetary authority or a central bank. Central banks administer two-tiered monetary systems in which the vast majority of the money is created at the second tier by privately owned and operated banks. These banks are like mints. They issue deposit account balances to people like you and me, usually when they make us loans, and they create these balances ex nihilo, out of nothing. Central banks control the ability of banks to do this through regulation and supervision and by issuing money of their own, cash, or promises to pay cash, known as reserves. Banks need reserves to settle payments with each other and in case their depositors go to a teller and ask for cash. Uh, If they run out, they can borrow reserves from each other or from the central bank at what's known as the discount window. The central bank adjusts the interest rate for these borrowings to influence the amount of deposits banks create. If central banks do their job well, banks do not create too many deposits, and no one ever notices that there's any difference between a deposit account balance at a bank and cash. But the theory assumes that only banks augment the supply of cash. The system's not designed to accommodate non-banks doing this. Nonetheless, practice has moved away from theory, and today, shadow banks supply a significant portion of the money that our economy relies on to function. And when the economy slows and asset prices fall, banks tend to be unwilling or unable to backstop the shadow banks. And because of their regulatory status, shadow banks can't access the discount window. So if the Fed wants to ensure that cash and cash substitutes trade at par, it's forced to set up a bunch of ad hoc facilities using Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act, a special emergency authority that it got during the Great Depression. Uh, The Fed is operating six such facilities at the moment and each functions as an AirSats discount window for a different sort of shadow bank. Now, there are a number of reasons why this is not a good way to run a monetary system. Uh, The first is it leaves the Fed scrambling every time it looks like money substitutes created by shadow banks might break par. If the Fed drops a ball, even for a moment, a severe credit contraction can result and trigger huge job losses. This is what happened with Lehman in the fall of 2008. Second, it reduces the efficacy of monetary policy and fuels credit bubbles. The Fed can limit the power of banks to create money, but it has far less control over shadow banks. And if financial markets become convinced that the Fed will backstop their money substitutes no matter what, it can lead to dangerous and opportunistic behavior. Third, uh, it leads to rent extraction. Uh, By lending cash to shadow banks at below market rates, the Fed subsidizes them. Um, And fourth, uh, relatedly, um, it undermines the statutory scheme for money and banking. Prior to the Fed's creation, a private association called the Clearing House stemmed banking panics, picking winners and losers based on basically who J.P. Morgan and his associates liked. And Congress wanted to put an end to this it set down generally applicable rules governing what sort of banks could access emergency liquidity and on what terms. And these rules are still in place as far as banks are concerned, but they don't amount to much when it comes to backstopping shadow banks. And so I think the solution to all of this first problem stuff is to get rid of the ad hocery and confine the activity of money augmentation that the Fed needs to backstop to the chartered banking system. The second problem relates to another eight or so facilities that the Fed has created pursuant to the CARES Act. Uh, these facilities further essentially fiscal policies by investing in municipalities and businesses. And the Federal Reserve Act provides no framework for these investments. Um, and Section 13.3, um, which Congress adopted to permit the Fed to lend to non-banks, includes a number of restrictions that are inconsistent with them. First, there's what I call the credit availability proviso, which is a restriction originally adopted in 1932 that requires the Fed before lending to non-banks to obtain evidence that applicants are unable to access adequate credit accommodations from existing banks. The proviso is supposed to preserve the Fed's role as a monetary authority. It prevents the Fed from bypassing banks unless banks themselves have failed or are failing, and the Fed has to step into their shoes to ensure that money and credit aggregates don't collapse. Um, Then there's also requirements that Congress added in 2010, including that the Fed ensure that its non-bank lending is, quote, for the purpose of providing liquidity to the financial system. Congress basically bypassed both of these requirements in the CARES Act because it directed the Fed to invest money on the government's behalf in businesses and municipalities, not just to keep the monetary system running. Unfortunately, Congress didn't create a framework for these investments. Instead, it put the Fed in the unenviable position of engaging in a sort of highly charged activity of dispensing trillions of dollars, potentially of government assistance without the benefit of any guidelines to insulate it from blowback. And the consequences are already apparent in the wake of sort of substantial industry political pressure. The Fed has revised its term sheets for these facilities numerous times. Um, The Fed's supposed to be an independent central bank, but deciding who gets government loans and on what terms is not a monetary function and it's not a technical job, it's inherently political. So next time, I think it would be better if an executive branch agency managed these programs, or if Congress decides it should be the Fed, then Congress, not the Fed, should make the decisions about who is eligible and on what terms. Thanks.
1: Great, thank you all for uh, those really interesting comments. Um, Paula. I wanted to start with you on a couple of questions. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about your comments is this idea that the Fed should avoid advantaging certain sectors over others. Obviously a big concern with the 13.3 facilities broadly has been that the Fed does not want to take on excess what it views to be excessive credit risk. Um, and I think part of that can end up sometimes favoring sectors. For example, hotels get left out often because they are overleveraged relative to what, what the Fed programs allow. I guess how do you balance those two things? The credit risk concern on one hand and this desire not to be, you know, playing favorites on the other.
2: So I'd say two things. First of all, I think it's important to distinguish lending unsecured, which is what buying a bond involves, and lending secured. So by repo or whatever, because when you lend secured, you can control your risk over time. Um, And to put it crudely, you can make a mistake at the beginning, value the paper too highly, not require sufficient excess collateral and you can correct for that down the road whereas lending outright at the beginning is a kind of one-shot game and you've done it the second thing i would say which goes more directly to your question is all all of this though should be in providing any assistance it should be relative to those that are in need so if the whole hotel sector was the only sector in need and nobody else was in need and assuming for the moment that it's okay to do credit policy at all then under those conditions it would be okay just to lend to the hotel sector but it wouldn't be okay on my criteria to lend just to the hotel sector and then the following week it turns out there's a a problem in the manufacturing sector and they say oh no we don't lend to manufacturing so this comes back to having general criteria in the background and I, I think those, I think other central banks have done that quite frankly. And I think that the Federal Reserve has tended not to be active enough between crises um, in articulating what its contingency plans are. And when, and when bringing a monetary policy, when it has done a review, as it's doing a review of its monetary regime, um, it's tended to be painfully slow and that the next crisis arrived before they had completed that um review so i think there's that. that's kind of that's i don't think that's cheap criticism it is criticism um i think the lesson which matters lesson, more is that the federal reserve like like other central banks need to be busier during financial and economic peacetime in addressing and publishing how they will respond when things happen, you know, in a horrible cyber attack, in another pandemic or whatever. Actually, can I say one other thing, which goes concretely to what you said. So when I saw that they were gonna step in and rescue the private equity industry and the junk bond industry, my second thought was, oh, they will will have to lend to municipals and states as well. And they will have to let's find a way of lending to smaller businesses as well. And that those announcements came later from the Fed, but they were completely obvious, both in terms of the kind of politics in a bad sense, but also in terms of politics in a good sense. Now they, they corrected their error reasonably quickly, but it wasn't an error they particularly needed to make.
1: Interesting. Thank you for that, um, Kate. We have a question for you from the audience, actually, um, which is obviously, as as you as you discussed, principles are important. But why are why in, in the case that they are important, should they not be in the law? Otherwise, where should they be? Um, and the contention here is that being in the law would increase their democratic legitimacy.
3: Kate, you're muted. I think. Thank you. So I I come to this as a a lawyer. And one of the the interesting challenges you you realize when you're a law professor and you spend your time immersed in the law, and I spent some time clerking for two wonderful judges, is the law is never self-executing. And so if we could have a world where there was perfect information, where the public courts and central banks all had precisely the same information, and that information was accurate relative to whatever legal standard we want to use to both say here's when they ought to act and here's when they ought not to act, then of course, we we might well want the law to map perfectly onto what we want central banks to do. Uh, but one of the core challenges, of course, is information is not perfect. And even with the benefit of hindsight, not only does that not illuminate, but that can create different biases over trying to assess uh, what was actually known or should have been known at a particular point in time. And so again, going back to to the example of a Badgett's victim and lender of last resort, uh, there's been a meaningful effort by the Fed to say that the reason that they didn't uh, rescue Lehman Brothers was not because they made a judgment call under the circumstances, but rather that they lacked legal authority to do so. And they base that on their claims regarding the solvency of the institution. Uh, but of course, there was incredible noise in any assessment of solvency at the time. There's been a beautiful book written uh, showing that that actually wasn't the focus of a lot of their conversations. And of course, as a practical matter, if a, a central bank chooses not to rescue an institution, it's going to appear as if it was solvent. Uh, had they not rescued Bear, it, it would have appeared the same. And, and of course, it's also contingent on a bunch of other decisions a central bank is making. So again, I think we want the law to roughly map We want legal constraints to roughly map onto the broad-based principles but to think that the law can be the perfect tool uh, requires us to assume that courts can come in and perfectly uh, discern whether or not a central bank was acting appropriately or not. A- and I think I'm very skeptical of the capacity of courts to do that um, and the capacity of the law to do that well. And so, again, if we want meaningful accountability, as counterintuitive as it might seem, sometimes what you actually want is to say, here's what we want to achieve, here's how, how it ought to be achieved. we're going to create a lot of transparency and accountability through things like testimony, so they really need to explain what they're doing and whether or not they're they're achieving what we want them to achieve and how we want them to achieve it, Um, but provide a little bit of flexibility in the law, because otherwise there is this ability uh, to actually use the law as an excuse for not going in, and that actually can foreclose precisely the type of public debates that we need to have, and it can reduce accountability by providing excuses not to act without actually having to take responsibility because I can say look it was it was out of our hands so again I think the law plays an important role here but but it's one of many different tools that need to be used in complementary ways to achieve the optimal level of, of accountability
1: now a, a follow-up question that relates closely and I'm going to I'm going to tweak it a little bit for out of my own interest but um, to what to cre- to what degree is it fair to say that the Fed is lending in a way that's consistent with Badge's dictum presently? Um, and then I'll, I'll tweak that and ask, you know, can you give specific instances right now where you think they've clearly departed, that maybe we need some sort of more clear overarching principle to apply to?
3: Yeah. So, I, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to go at this, but I, I don't think Badge's dictum is what they're using as the animating principle and they're not invoking it. It's very different than it was in, in 2008 where Bernanke himself was invoking that so frequently and used that so often to say, here's what we're doing and here's what we're not. And really he was doing that to, to get to Lev's point where the one of the biggest changes there is that we had liquidity transformation occurring outside of banks and in markets. And so we're using this framework to say, here's why market-based intermediation also requires certain central bank backstops. Um, But if we look at what's going on now, um, look at what the the Fed recently uh, started doing in terms of the secondary corporate credit facility. So they are buying broadly uh, a whole variety of different bonds. It's not obvious that there's any liquidity need or market functioning need. Um, And it's not obvious that this is a situation we're trying to go in is going to create this type of stabilization. So so if you look at Baden's Dictum, This isn't collateralized lending to overcome a short-term acute liquidity issue. It's it's contorting credit and it's not necessarily inappropriate, but whether it's appropriate or not is very difficult to discern because what we have right now is these two long reaching macroeconomic concerns where according to to Chair Powell, where if we have too many companies going bankrupt uh, without an appropriate scheme for reorganization or we have too many workers who are out of the workforce for too long, we could end up with meaningful scars for long-term economic growth. And I think he's he's right to be concerned about both of those. He's also right to be concerned that if companies are shrinking uh, because of lack of access to credit or failing to pursue opportunities because of lack of access to credit, there could be harms to, to workers and, and to the health of the broader economy. But we haven't articulated how, where they're going in, and the terms that they're using in these various areas actually reflect that. So, so for example, in that facility, we're not seeing something like a, a penalty rate. And, and they often, of course, don't use penalty rates, um, but, but we need to at least have a conversation about that. Similarly, across all of these different use of facilities, while well, we have things labeled liquidity, you know, um, they're not liquidity like we've traditionally thought about it. Uh, there's a lot of talk about building bridges. And so that suggests it's something akin to liquidity, where it's looking longer term. Um, but it, it really doesn't fit the traditional model at all of an institution or an environment where there's liquidity transformation and where what we're trying to do is stop unnecessary runs by creating. Uh, the ability of a, a central bank to go in and to provide cash uh, and and to stop uh, the, the need for institutions to sell these longer term assets at fire sale prices. So I think there's a whole variety of ways that that paradigm just doesn't fit the, the nature of the challenge or the nature of the interventions. Again, when we're looking at the credit facilities, I think if we're looking at health and a lot of the uh, separately, a lot of the shorter-term facilities that we saw used previously that they rolled out again, um, I think those actually can fit the paradigm. But in credit policy, we're doing something that's different. And as Paul pointed out, the Fed hasn't done a great job outside of crisis periods, and I would say hasn't done a great job in this crisis to to articulate with specificity what they are trying to achieve and yeah. and how they are yeah. trying to.
2: That's exactly right.
1: I actually, I wanted to follow up with a question for, for you, Paula, on exactly at that point. Um, and then Lev, I'll jump to you after that. But I guess the, the question is, obviously there is a real concern about transparency around these facilities and around what the goal of these facilities is it's very easy to criticize lack of transparency and maybe harder to be transparent in real time. I guess if you had a couple of concrete recommendations for how they could be clear about what they're doing or what the overarching goal is, what would those be?
2: Um, Let let me say, first of all, since you brought me in again, that this is a completely different crisis from anything that Badger contemplated. He was writing in the late 1860s and the early 1870s. I suspect that had Victorian England suffered a pandemic the government um would not have locked down the economy and if the economy had spontaneously locked down which is why the government mandated a lockdown um i doubt very much whether the government would have come to the rescue of families and businesses in the way that governments have now and the economy would have been in worse shape for a a lot worse shape for a lot longer afterwards i would would suggest and um the point, the point being that as as societal expectations change, central banks have to prepare for that. What would I, what would I um, recommend on transparency? So one's one starting, one's default assumption um, and preference as a central banker should be, I am I am going to publish who I am lending to at some point. Um, is it safe to do so now? If I do so in the short run. Will I deter people from taking funds from me um, in ways that perversely hurt the general public and the economy as a whole? If that, that may not be the case. If it is the case, then there should be um, publication after a lag. Um, One could debate what the lag should be. But in between time, even if you don't publish immediately, and we put put, what I'm going to say now we put in place in the UK back during the last crisis, Frankly, after we'd made a bit of a mistake, um, was that the Federal Reserve should be reporting to the chairs and ranking members of the two key committees just who they um, have lent to, um, so that there's no secret um, about that. Now, there may be people watching who are saying, "Well, actually, you couldn't trust these politicians not to publish it." Well, that that was that would be a terrible thing, and it, and it should be disclosed on the same basis that the intelligence services and security services disclose things in, in camera or secretly. But if, if, it, if the politicians can't be trusted, which would be a symptom of a much, much greater malaise, then at least it should be reported to some kind of staff facility in Congress so that the Federal Reserve, as an unelected, independent, insulated body, isn't, isn't sitting on information which it says will provide this to you only when we think it's safe, because that is a kind of self-monitoring and self-reflective accountability um, that just isn't consistent with the deep values of, uh, of the political systems in which we're, we're lucky enough to live in. Now, they
1: are this, and this so disagree, crisis.
2: And so, I, and so I disagree. And so I disagree with Secretary Mnuchin, who I think has got this wrong. And I think he's partly getting it wrong because it's the first time he's been through it.
1: You disagree
2: with him in what sense? Well, I did, "I think he's, I had, perhaps, if I have made a mistake on this, um, I apologize. I think he said, no, that we don't think we should um, publish X, Y, and Z about who is taking, which companies are taking money from the government or from the um, or from the Federal Reserve, or um, certainly we'll by implication from the Federal Reserve as well. And if, if that is his position, then it at least ought to be, we will provide this to some, either some Congress people or or some um, staff in Congress, and we will publish it more generally when it's safe to do so and when it doesn't affect confidence in businesses um, and their incentives to, to borrow. You can't just have the executive branch and the Federal Reserve just doing what they like and no one ever knows
1: right it is worth noting just for our viewers who maybe pay a little bit less attention to this that the fed is putting out more information on the cares act facilities than it previously has put out on on the other facilities and those are all available on a landing page so i'll tweak the link out to that after this wraps up just so everyone can find it it's a bit as all things with the federal reserve website it's a bit difficult to locate on your own (laughs) <laughs> no, uh, I was, I was hoping to ask you, uh, we have a question from an audience member about your shadow banking point. Um, as, as they say, it's one thing to reign in money creation and shadow banking in the United States via changes in laws and regulations, but how do you do it for shadow bank money creation outside of the United States, which the BIS says amounts to about 13 trillion? I assume that's last year. What's, what's your response there?
4: This is a really important and really critical question. Um, And I think that the answer involves has to involve international diplomacy. And when we think about the Basel Accords, we have three Basel Accords about bank supervision and regulation, and we really need a Basel Accord about money creation um, overseas. So for the United States, it's it's about the euro dollar markets. Uh, which are not specific to Europe, that they're, their um, dollar-denominated do- deposit and short-term debt markets that take place outside of the U.S. jurisdiction, um, the OECD countries and the Basel participants should reach an agreement about the ability of uh, institutions in their country to create um, money substitutes in other people's currencies. And so, U.S. financial institutions creating euro-denominated deposits, for example, um, that would be subject to these rules, and and there would be sort of some sort of reciprocity. Um, I don't have all the answers here, but this is definitely the hardest part of constraining money creation, and probably the most important. And um, an international solution is essential.
1: Right, and then we had another question actually that I think you would be the, probably the right person to take, which is that bank credit is an important transmission channel of any central bank's monetary policy. The risk-weighted bank capital requirements based on perceived or decreed credit risk distorts it. Why is that ignored? Partially, I'm sorry,
4: I missed that. I, I I missed the first part of that question. Could you just repeat it?
1: Absolutely. Um, Bank credit is an important transmission channel of any central bank's monetary policy. The risk-weighted bank capital requirement based on perceived or decreed risk distorts it. Why is that ignored?
4: Great great question. Um, I don't think it's ignored that that it distorts it. It's part of the two-tiered monetary system. And so in the two-tiered monetary system, the government says, we want to enlist the help of privately run institutions to create the bulk of the money supply, because we do not want to make the decisions about what assets are going to be monetized. We want to outsource that responsibility to a bunch of privately managed banks for a variety of reasons. But the capital rules are a way of saying, there are some decisions that the government is still going to make about how these banks exercise this delegated authority. Um, And the rules are designed in part to um, reduce the amount of risk that banks can take, recognizing that essentially the government is backstopping them and there are going to be incentives misaligned there. Um, But the Community Reinvestment Act is an example of another set of rules governing how banks exercise this delegated authority that doesn't really have to do very much about losses. It has to do with how the government wants to see um, the banks exercise this authority. And so it does distort, um, but in a very intentional sense. Um, It's it's a set of guidelines for the banks that they have to follow if they want to be in the business of um, partnering with the central bank to create a workable money supply for the economy.
1: Okay, interesting, thank you. And then uh, for Paul, if Congress asked you how it might amend the Federal Reserve Act so as to better limit its unelected power, what would you tell it?
2: I would, first thing I would say is set an objective for the lender of last resort policy. Um, I think that would, And I think that's much better than the kind what's tended to happen in the past is the Fed have acted in the way that they are now. um, And then um, Congress has tried to place constraints on them, some of which have been well designed, some of which have been poorly designed, in my view. But they never say, what's it actually for? Well, there is something in the 1913 Act about an elastic currency, but no one alive knows what that means and few people did when it was passed over a century um, ago. So I think an objective for the lender of last resort policy and putting the Federal Reserve under a duty to be the lender of last resort, subject to some constraints, including not lending to um, bodies that it knows or should know to be fundamentally insolvent. Then I think there's a much more difficult question, which is what should the objective um, be for credit policy of the kind that we've seen in recent, recent weeks. And I mean, let, let's be completely clear about what's been going on. The Federal Reserve and, and the government have been acting to hold the economy in some kind of suspended animation and to ensure that families are in food and shelter and businesses don't collapse. And the Federal Reserve and the government ending up, end up doing this because private sector banks wouldn't willingly do it there's a lot of rubbish being talked about banks already being part of the solution they may become part of the solution um, as the economy reopens and gradually recovers but so far banks have just stepped up where they had a contractual commitment under um, committed lines of of credit they haven't been writing much new lending um, business and yet all sorts of people and businesses across the country who never thought they would need a loan or a cash handout um, have needed one and i think I think fr- I don't know what the answer is about framing limits around that, but I think something around that is is needed because otherwise the Federal Reserve just becomes um, not a central bank, but a sense say everybody's personal bank so that all American citizens and businesses it's as if they have an account with the federal. Um, reserve. And if that's not the model that America wants, then it needs to place some kind of reasonable constraint on the kind of activity underway at the moment, which I think is best done. This goes back to Kate's point about the law, I think. It's best done in terms of purposes and objectives um, that are reasonably concrete and can be tracked rather than trying to envisage every single situation and and putting a constraint on on various things. So the 13.3 constraint that says you can only um, provide general facilities. Um, This this isn't sensible because it's not hard for central bankers to imagine circumstances where, because of concentrations of activity, particularly, frankly, in the US system of custodial um, businesses, that the failure of one firm would be an absolute disaster and one would need a facility for just that that firm. so I don't have all of the answers to this, but I think framing it in terms of objectives is better than trying to think of very detailed constraints. And and the objectives should not be vague. I mean, I'm I'm keen on resurrecting what lawyers call the non-delegation doctrine, um, or a variant of it for independent institutions, where there really does need to be a clear principle and a monitorable objective, rather than just something that the court says is an intelligible principle, um, which has become a kind of Alice in Wonderland term of art.
1: Interesting. Now, this is actually this is a question for Kate, but I'm curious in all of your response to it. So we'll start with Kate and then move around, Um, which is what types of moral hazard did the new Fed facilities raise and how should the Fed manage them? Should they worry worry more right now about economic risks or about moral hazard?
3: You always have to worry. About it, right. There's no situation in which you're going to have massive government intervention uh, where you're not going to have some moral hazard. On the other hand, we we know from experience, if you are too concerned about moral hazard during periods of systemic distress, then you have a, a very real risk that the government isn't going to do enough. Uh, to support economic activities and to support the health of financial markets, and the long-term consequences can be devastating. So I, I, I don't believe that we deal with this by just throwing moral hazard uh, concerns completely out the window once we are facing any kind of systemic distress, but but I do think that they have to be balanced. Um, the, the specific, and so two comments on that. One, we we mitigate some of that moral hazard Uh, the the specific moral hazard we have to worry about I think this time around is that that institutions are are too quick to take on debt uh, because they expect the the central bank to come in and to support debt markets and and to really actively support lending. Um, So one of the the patterns that we saw going into this uh, unique event is that even though this was brought on by COVID-19, so by this public health crisis and by policy responses designed to contain the public health crisis, non-corporate uh, or non-financial corporations had been issuing record amounts of debt, which, which really r- increased their fragility. Uh, going into this crisis, reduce their capacity to to borrow directly from markets without that implicit uh, government backstop. And and as a result, I think we should expect to see a lot of corporate debt going forward. Um, So I think that is the, the big moral hazard. I think one of the ways we traditionally deal with moral hazard is through then developing a regulatory scheme that helps address that moral hazard. And for me, this is one of the challenging areas. Uh, we know when it comes to banks, and as Love pointed out, to particular non-banks, that given the nature of what they are doing, there's going to be externalities if they fail. Um, so there's moral hazard there, but it arises not just from the government intervention, but rather the broader context in which they are operating and the ability of uh, other actors to, to be harmed, And which is precisely why a, a central bank and the government are going in in that rescue operation. And we deal with that through regulation. And one of the things we know from banking is it's really hard to do that well. So I think one of the concerns we've already seen is now a lot of people are wondering whether we need regulatory limits on leverage for non-banks just like we have for banks. And I, I think it's very hard to do that well. So I think one of the, the interesting considerations is not just about moral hazard, but what are the the regulatory expectations that are gonna be set up to contain uh, Sources of moral hazard, and those two can just be costly and messy. Um, and, and so, it's reasons again for the government not to avoid intervening, but to think about how they are intervening and making sure they are doing so when there's there's really a a broader systemic justification for the support they are providing.
1: Interesting. And and Lev, it seems like this this uh, question hits on your shadow banking concerns a bit, but I, I wonder if you could just elaborate
4: yeah sure i mean and i also i just want to tie together something that kate said earlier about law with what paul was just saying about lender of last resort Uh, and one way to think about at a big picture level the role of the law is that the law is about where discretion is who gets discretion where are you going to house discretion um is discretion going to be with the legislature is it going to be with the independent agency is it going to be in the courts Who's going to get the last word to decide? And um, what we have right now on the credit policies is basically full discretion with the Fed. The the way the law is structured is that Congress has said, we're not going to exercise much discretion. We're not going to put down a bunch of rules, nor are we going to set up rules for the courts or a role for the courts here um, or private parties. The fed is basically going to decide how to disperse these monies and what paul is pointing out is that the federal reserve act doesn't even set forth a guiding principle to constrain that discretion um, now i think congress did give the fed a principle in 1977 in the federal reserve reform act and this is the famous dual mandate um which is in section 2a which is where uh congress tells the fed that it needs to run the its monetary policy it needs to exercise basically all of its authority in a way that shall maintain long-run growth of monetary and credit aggregates um, that's commensurate with the economy's long-run potential um, and that will promote effectively the goals of maximum employment and price stability and this so-called dual mandate um, I think actually does apply to all of its lender of last resort facilities as Congress conceived of them in 1977. In other words, its 133 lending was really a monetary function. It was about allowing the Fed to preserve monetary aggregates and their growth consistent with the dual mandate. But this is not helping us for any of the new CARES Act facilities. And so Congress needs to say something more about how those um, policies should be structured. Or else all of the discretion is is with the Fed. Um, and that's going to put the Fed as an independent, non-political central bank in a real bind.
1: Okay, interesting. And Paul, you have the final word of our panel here. What's, what's your thought on, on the moral hazard question?
2: Thank you very much. And thank you again for inviting me to do this. So I'm in much the same place as Kate. I'll try and be crisp. So the junk bond industry and private equity sponsors have now been bailed out twice in a decade, just over a decade. They didn't, they didn't set out to do it, they didn't cause the crises, but they have nevertheless been bailed out. And so they get the upside when things are good and the taxpayer gets the downside potentially when things are bad. Um, I, that doesn't mean that I particularly want to regulate that industry, but I think there should be a careful look at removing the tax breaks um, on interest. Um, because at the moment the taxpayer subsidizes leverage and the taxpayer then comes to the rescue when there's too much leverage. Second thing I would say about shadow banking and market-based activity, which both Kate and Lev have turned on. I mean, the, the viewers should have no doubt that it is shameful that faced with a fairly small crisis at the beginning of March and before, that the treasury markets cease to function well. And that signals that there is a, a fairly deep malaise in, in the treasury markets that, that the authorities need to come back to. But one thing they could do is they could they could just as central bankers are, are meant to raise capital requirements for banks during the good times, during the boom, they could raise haircuts and initial margin requirements. Um, for certain types of market-based finance dur- during the boom so as to um, arrest and disincentivize excessive leverage in um, in trading markets. And then finally, I would just say, I completely agree with what Lev said about the need for a, an international regime on shadow banking. The body to, pr- to, to pursue that um, is the G20 Financial Stability Board on which I used to serve and the reason I mention it is because the current chair of the Financial Stability Board is the Vice Chair for Regulation at the Federal um, Reserve. And he, Randy Qualls can do real good in this area if he marshals um, his peers around the world. The one, one thing I would, one important qualification I would add to the, um, the way left put this is, from the point of view of the United States, You want to make use of the dollar elsewhere in the world systemically safe. I wouldn't encourage you to deter um, the use of the dollar elsewhere in the world. That might be both a geopolitical mistake and make it much more expensive for you to occupy the position in the world um, that you have had since the Second World War.
1: Okay, interesting. Um, Thank you all, We, we are out of time. Um, But thank you everyone for tuning in on today's event. Uh, The video recording of this event will be available on the Cato webpage later today. Um, And now I'm going to turn it over to George to close out the panel.
0: Well, thank you, everybody. I hope you all enjoyed uh, today's uh, session. Please join us on Thursday at the same time for our second session on defining fiscal stimulus duties. See you then. Bye-bye.